I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. Today, we are honored to have with us microbiome expert, Dr. Robin Chutkin. Dr. Chutkin is an integrative gastroenterologist and the author of the best-selling digestive health books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. She is also the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice that uses microbial optimization and nutritional therapy in order to treat a variety of digestive disorders. One of those nutritional therapies is Sakara. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Chutkin received her bachelor's degree from Yale University and her medical degree from Columbia, where she also did her internship and residency and served as chief resident. She has authored dozens of journal articles and book chapters and has been a featured lecturer throughout the United States and Europe. Well, thank you, Dr. Robin Chutkin, for joining us today on the Sakara Life podcast. I am so thrilled to be here with you, too. I remember when we first met you uh, years ago at a Mind Body Green That's right. weekend. Revitalize. Revitalize. Yeah, and uh, your story still sticks with me. And I'd love for you to share kind of how you got from you know, a gastroenterologist to a, a bacteria specialist. And we'll get into all the nitty gritty of the microbiome and what all that is, but I'd love for you to just speak to your why because it is really powerful. And, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned the why thing because in medical school, we're so sort of focused on what, right? What do you have? Is it Crohn's? Is it colitis? What is it? But nobody ever answers that question, why? And we're never encouraged to ask it. So like, why do you have crows? Where does this stuff come from? Does it just fall out of the sky? But we're so busy figuring out what and figuring out what pill to prescribe. And so for me, it was very, very personal. I'm a conventionally trained gastroenterologist. I trained here in New York at Columbia for med school and residency and then Mount Sinai for my fellowship. And I had a fantastic time at those two institutions. But again, there wasn't a lot of why. And then when I joined the faculty, in, in Washington at Georgetown, I was practicing pretty conventional gastroenterology, which meant I was doing a lot of endoscopy and colonoscopy and a lot of prescribing. And my area of interest is inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And it was just at the advent of these new drugs that we call biologics for these diseases. And now you see them advertised on television and they're used for everything, right? So all these autoimmune diseases for rheumatoid arthritis, for lupus, for psoriasis, for Crohn's. And they work great, but the problem is it comes at a cost. These drugs have really serious side effects, including cancer, including serious infection, including death for some of them. So wow. it's great that they work, but there's definitely a price to pay. And I was, I've gone from, I think, the area's largest prescriber of these drugs to the area's 
largest unprescriber over a period of years. Now I'm the terminator for helping people to get off these drugs. And really, if you had told me 20 years ago that I would be treating serious autoimmune disease like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with food, with plants, I literally would have laughed at you yeah. and rolled my eyes That's why twice. I think your, power, your story is so yeah, powerful because you've been on the other side. I've totally been on the other side. And the amazing thing, it's the patients. It wasn't these amazing institutions where I had the privilege of training, but it's really the patients who taught me. And I remember the first patient who was just a lovely woman and she had moved out of the area and come back and she had really bad Crohn's. And I asked her, well, what are you taking? And she said, nothing. And I remember I literally started to sweat. Like, what do you mean nothing? Nothing for your Crohn's? I got very nervous. And she's like, no, no, I'm doing great. And then I thought, well, she's probably not really doing great. Mm -hmm. And then I scoped her. And her colon was healed, and I literally was just flabbergasted. And she told me about this diet she was on. And it was really a version of the specific carbohydrate diet, which is sort of a first cousin of a paleo diet, and we can get more into that. But that really sparked my interest. Like, you could actually put these diseases into remission. I mean, dare we say the C word, cure, possibly, mm-hmm. but certainly deep remission, with the diet. I mean, I cannot even describe to you what sort of magical thinking that was. And it was scary because I remember sitting there and telling patients, if you don't take these drugs, it's like driving without insurance. You might be fine, but if you get in that car accident, you're screwed. And I remember telling people that and then realizing like, wow, these patients are not just fine, they're thriving. But for me, the really personal piece was after the birth of my beloved daughter, Sydney, mm-hmm. who's 14 and a half now and is wow. probably rolling her eyes if she hears me refer to her that way. <laughs> that's coming. Yeah, for I you. know. I know. And that's one of the reasons your story just so sticks with me now that I'm a mother. It is, at the same time, one of the biggest regrets in my life. I wish I could have a do-over around her birth. But at the same time, I'm really grateful for the experience because it totally opened my eyes. So the experience was that I was a healthy woman. I was what they call AMA, advanced maternal age, because I was 39, but super healthy, and uh, went into the hospital to have her and didn't realize at the time that that epidural that seems so enticing and can really ease the pain of labor, and you've gone through it, so you know, Mm -hmm. but it also drastically can increase the likelihood of you having a C-section. And so I had a C-section, And I thought, okay, well, that's still okay. But what happened was I had the flu that year, real flu. And so I had a fever. I was fine other than the fever. But because of my fever, when she came out, they decided to just prophylactically, just precautionary, put her in the the neonatal ICU, the NICU. And at the time, I thought, because I hadn't had my sort of aha moment, I thought, oh, this is great. They're being super cautious and putting her in the NICU. They had also given me antibiotics because of my fever, which I can't fault them for too much. I mean, it was a flu, but they're not sure. Woman in labor, high fever, fine. But then in the NICU, unbeknownst to me, they also gave her high doses of intravenous antibiotics. So let's walk this back a little bit. You know that that moment when the baby comes out is one of the most important moments in life because that's when we get we get our founding species, right? Mm-hmm. And I hopefully you had the had the advantage of did you have a, a vaginal delivery? Oh man, that's a whole nother podcast. No, oh. I tried. And all right. Well we gotta talk about some yeah. rewilding then. Yes. Yeah. And rewilding. so this is the thing. I mean, we all my husband's so funny. He's like, I was C section. Could I be rewilded? I'm like, no, you cannot go back there once you've come out. That's, yeah. That's another podcast. But he's trying to get back in. He's trying there. to get back <laughs> in. So so really as you go through as the baby, as a head crowns, 
and the baby starts to come out, the head actually turns posteriorly. I have a great video of this. And it turns posteriorly to face the tush. And that's because that's a moment when the baby swallows a mouthful of microbes and gets all those founding species, right? There's a reason that it comes out down there. Mm. Um, and so babies who are born via C-section, unfortunately, instead of being colonized with the mother's healthy microbes, they're colonized with hospital-acquired staff and other things. And what's really incredible is that that difference leads to an increase in asthma, mm in autoimmune disease, in allergies, and obesity that continues for years after. Isn't that incredible that just yeah. that difference, not getting those founding species? And then to sort of compound things, if you don't nurse, and I used to think all these women who talked about the importance of nursing, I'm like, these La Leche people are crazy. Mm-hmm. Come to find out they're absolutely spot on. So the third most common ingredient in breast milk is this thing called an HMO, not a medical HMO, but it's a human milk oligosaccharide. Mm -hmm. And human milk oligosaccharides are the third most common ingredient in breast milk, but they're completely indigestible by babies because they're actually there to feed the baby's bacteria. It's like fiber. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's food. It's Mm -hmm. fibrous food for the baby. And, uh, and that helps to sort of grow the baby's little army of bacteria that can help to repel staph and other things on the mother's nipple. So I had the double whammy of, triple whammy really, C-section baby. She got IV antibiotics at birth, even though she was fine. She mm-hmm. didn't have a fever, no signs of being sick. And then because of the antibiotics I got, my breast milk dried up shortly after, like about a month after. Wow. And I had no idea. So again, it's one of those things, you know, if only I knew then what I know now. But I I had no idea. And I honestly thought like this idea of being proactive and more medicine and more tests and sort of more treatment was the right way to do it. And I'm a huge advocate of medication in general and surgery and things like that, but judiciously applied. And the problem we're seeing in medicine now is that these things aren't judiciously applied. It's all this, oh, let's just do a C-section. Let's schedule it. It's, you know, more convenient. Yeah. And we're relying on it. We're relying on it. And and no doubt a lot of babies being born by C-section, it's medically necessary. And in fact, it can be life-saving for the mother and for the baby. But there's a whole slew of them that are being done that are really more about commerce and convenience. And I think women don't realize. They don't realize that they're actually increasing the risk of their baby having, and particularly mm-hmm. if you yourself have a history of autoimmune disease or allergies or any of these things, then you're really increasing the risk. So it's one of the things, even though we're a gastroenterology practice, we really push our pregnant woman, like try your best for vaginal delivery. And you say uh, this do-over, that you'd love to have a do-over. That really rings a bell for me because I wish that I could have a do-over when it comes to all of the antibiotics that I took for my cystic acne. So, you know, I, I battled with cystic acne since we were in high school and did rounds and rounds of tetracycline, aminocycline, all of those different ah. cyclines. And then I was given a prescription for Z-Packs to just keep in my desk drawer at college. And when I had a cyst, to just take one of these Z-Packs, which knowing now what I know about antibiotics, and that's a very serious antibiotic used for things like pneumonia. And I was taking it for a pimple. I just want to weep when I hear that, honestly. I do. And, you know, the thing is, I'm sure these dermatologists were so well-meaning. I know the pediatrician who prescribed 18 courses of antibiotics for my kid before she was two 
was very well-meaning. I mean, I didn't even realize, you know, that, and, and still, but the really crazy thing, Whitney, mm-hmm. is that there are still dermatologists today who are putting teenagers on years of antibiotics. The, the, the most sort of tragically refractory patient I've seen in my practice in terms of just messed up microbiome was a man, lovely man from Kansas, who had been on literally 10 years of doxycycline for acne. He developed celiac disease. He developed all kinds of stuff. He has neuropsych issues that we don't know for sure. We can't prove it, but I feel are related to just his microbiome being so out of mm-hmm. whack. And we know so many of the neurotransmitters, the serotonin and the GABA and all of that are produced in the gut. Now we know so much more about the link between mental health and the microbiome. And, and so it's just... I've gotten to the point in my practice where I feel like I spend most of my day just trying to undo the medical misadventure of well-meaning physicians. Mm-hmm. So, and so, what tough. was what was the manifestation for your child? As uh, like you said, she was on so many rounds of antibiotics. Yeah. Like, so again, this triple whammy of C-section, minimally breastfed, tons of antibiotics at birth. She was sick all the time, and because she was our first and she's our only, we had no idea. But I kept sensing like this isn't right. Like my friend's babies aren't sick all the time. I mean, every time we were going to travel, invariably, she'd have a high fever and be sick. Every time we got somewhere, you know, we traveled on a plane, she was sick. So she was averaging, I mean, again, if you do the math, 18 courses of antibiotics by the time you're two, it was like nine, almost 10 courses of antibiotics a year. It was almost every month. Wow. Sick all the time. And it seemed like the more antibiotics she got, the sicker she got. And I remember so distinctly the day when I just said, okay, we're done. We were getting ready to travel for Thanksgiving to go down to Beaufort, South Carolina, where my husband's from. And she had this cold that wouldn't get better and this prolonged cough. And my husband said, oh, we should take her to the doctor. And at that point, I already was like, I'm done with the doctor. And he said, no, no, we should take her. She might be really sick. So I boycotted. I said, I'm not going to go. You take her. Mm-hmm. And they came home and she came walking in the door all proud of herself, carrying this little machine, a nebulizer with stickers, and literally, I kid you not, four prescriptions. Well, she didn't have the prescriptions, but my husband did. She had a prescription for a steroid, an antibiotic, an antihistamine, and a bronchodilator. And she had a new diagnosis, asthma. And I was like, there's no way. My kid does not have asthma. She just has a bad goal, and she has a cough. And I literally took it all up. I put it in a box. I put it up in the attic. I'm like, we're done. We're done. We're not going to the doctor. Mm -hmm. Because I just had this terrible feeling that if we kept going down this road, something really bad was going to happen. This Mm -hmm. was a history that I was soliciting in so many of my patients in my practice who had Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and bad autoimmune diseases. And I felt like we were heading down that road. And so, you know, we had a wonderful pediatrician, lovely woman, but she just was unaware of this stuff. And she was unaware of the amount of prescription. So we'd go in and she'd open up the chart and say, okay, what was she on last? Amoxicillin? Okay, we'll use this. And it wasn't until I went home and I pulled out on my little pharmacy receipts. I'm sort of an obsessive filer. (laughs) And I made literally a spreadsheet and I realized she's been on 18 courses of antibiotics. And so we stopped going. And in the beginning, she was still sick a lot for years. But instead of, you know, calling the pediatrician or even calling in an antibiotic, which I was able to do, wasn't in the practice of doing, but I probably had once or twice. I said, nope, we're just going to stick it out. You just got to be home and be sick. And eventually she stopped being sick all the time. And it was such a revelation. And I noticed it myself too, because I 
at that time was still the kind of physician where, oh, have a cold, got to get a pack, And there was a pharmacy downstairs from me in the hospital. And I was constantly in and out with Cipro and Z-Packs. And, and I was always either about to get a sinus infection, having a sinus infection, mm-hmm. or on the tail end of a sinus infection. It was just this sort of cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I stopped also and, and got much better. And, you know, I'm maybe sick once a year, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, you have a cold, yeah. go to bed, binge, binge watch Netflix, and then you're better. <laughs> Drink and some green did, juice. How did you make that connection? I mean, because uh, it could have been many things, I guess. It could have been, you know, the antibiotic just wasn't good for her. Like, how did you make the connection to then decide to go and study the importance of cultivating good bacteria? Well, it was really, and again, another great question, it was really... Um, putting these things together because what I noticed was she would get these antibiotics and after a while she wasn't getting better and each subsequent, whether it was an air infection or pharyngitis or whatever it was, was more severe. Mm. And that is a common phenomenon we're aware of now because her bacteria were more resistant and then she was developing allergic reactions to the antibiotics and so stuff just wasn't working. And, you know, when we look at something like chronic sinusitis, we know that people, when you sort of start spiraling down, circling the drain with that where you're on and off antibiotics and steroids and so on. We know that chronic sinus sufferers are colonized with different stuff and that they actually have low levels of healthy bacteria. So this is a thing that I really try to focus on is this concept of terrain. It's, it's not about the virulence of the bacteria you're exposed to or that you're exposed or somebody else isn't. The reason you're often sick is because you don't have enough healthy bacteria. You have like a bad gut garden, your terrain is off. And and this is why it's so important to have really a high threshold. I mean, patients come in and they're like, yeah, I took an antibiotic. I just need you to tell me what probiotic to take. And it's like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Wow. You know, it's like going to McDonald's and eating a vitamin. Like, You've got to actually do the work. And part of the work is you've got to not take the antibiotic and you've got to be willing to be sick. Like, certainly if you have Ebola, take something, don't get me wrong. But for most of these basic things, for coughs and colds, for most sinus infections, for most air infections. And so this idea of like, you know, it's not only okay to be sick, but it's good to be sick sometimes. That's how you build resistance and resilience and yeah, all of that. Yeah. And so, you know, where our listeners are definitely educated on the microbiome and food as medicine, but I'd love to hear just from your perspective, how do you define the microbiome? The, technically, it's a microbiota. To refer to their genes also refers to all the organisms that live in and on our bodies. And we think of the microbiome as bacteria, but it's not just bacteria. It's viruses. It's fungal organisms, which can actually be friends, not just foe. Everybody's so afraid of candida. Mm-hmm. But the truth is yeast play an important role in digestion. The problem is when they are too abundant, and they're usually too abundant in the setting of not enough healthy bacteria. So it's the RKA. It's all the protozoas, a little one cell organisms. So it's all the wide, wide range of organisms that call our bodies home. And not just in our gut, that's where most of them are. And, you know, I like to think it's the most important organ in the body, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the neurologist might beg to differ. I think it's your brain and the cardiologist think it's a heart. But if we, we can't see them, obviously, but if we scraped them all up, they would weigh somewhere between three and five pounds. And most of them are in the gut. In fact, there are over a billion microbes in one drop of fluid in your colon alone. Yeah. So it's a lot. Like we think it's 100 trillion. It could be more. It's several hundred species in some areas and thousands in others. And what's really fascinating is that the 
microbiome under my nasolabial fold hair, which I'm sure you can barely see, right? (laughs) My nasolabial fold hair is completely different from the microbiome two millimeters up on top of my cheek based on the fact that this is a fold, it's a crease, the moisture is different, the oxygen content is different. Not amazing? Like just within millimeters on the same face, the same skin. Wow. It's fascinating. And are those microbes doing different things? Totally. Totally different things. And and so one of the really challenging things with looking at sort of the science of the microbiome is it's not just a species and who's present, but it's also this whole concept of metabolomics. So what are they making? And sometimes things are an adaptive process because uh, this situation is such that it is, so we've got to do this. And so we don't know when we measure the microbes and, you know, we start with the phyla, the big families, and then we drill down to different species. We don't know how much is cause and how much is effect. So when we look at something like Crohn's disease and we see, okay, there are low levels of some of the protective clostridial species, is that what causes it or is that an effect of it? And so it just makes it sort of more challenging. And What are some of the early signs that your microbiome is off and why do you think we are seeing so much more of it now than ever? When people ask me to describe the ideal microbiome, I'm like, it's like describing the ideal woman or the perfect woman. Like, is she five foot two or five foot nine? Is she blonde or brunette? Does she, you know, uh, does she have brown eyes or blue eyes or green eyes? Is she a size two or a size 12? So this idea that there's sort of a perfect microbiome, it's very adaptive. And so the, the ideal microbiome, if you're part of the Hudza tribe in Tanzania and you're a hunter-gatherer, is going to be very different from if you live in New York City in terms of what you need. But that being said, there's some basic, basic principles that we know to be true no matter where you are. And that is a diverse microbiome Mm -hmm. is really important. And I love that because it's sort of like the world, right? You need like the more diversity, the better. So you want a diverse microbiome with lots of different species. And just like with agriculture, you don't want monoculture. You want lots of different crops all being grown together. So monoculture is bad in the microbiome too. So species diversity is very important. And then also the numbers of different species. So the really sad statistic is that we only have about two thirds of the species that our brothers and sisters in the Amazon have, or that the the, um, hunter-gatherers in Tanzania have. And is that because of antibiotics and like chlorine in our water? And and maybe our mono meals and eating just 10 different types of fruits or vegetables. It's it's all of that. You guys are exactly on it. It is that we have super sanitized ourselves into this situation. So, and it's not just the antibiotics in the food. Remember that somewhere around 70 to 80% of all the antibiotics sold in the U.S. are used in the food industry, being given to animals, used in crops. So it's antibiotics you're taking, it's antibiotics in your food, it's the hand sanitizer, it's all the concrete and glass shout out New York City, mm-hmm. that decreases, you know, we get most of our microbes after our mom from soil. And so the absence of soil, the absence of food grown in soil. You know, we used to think like if people would ask me, what are the top three things? I'd say it's antibiotics, it's acid blocking drugs, because when you mm. change the pH of the intestines, you really change that sort of natural configuration of low bacteria at the top of the GI tract and the esophagus and stomach and high bacteria in the colon. You destroy the acid and you totally mess that up. And that's almost equivalent to antibiotic use. 
So I used to say it was antibiotics, it's acid-blocking drugs, and things like steroids and chemo. But there was just a study that came out this year that showed that many, many drugs and supplements that we had no idea, for example, SSRIs, antidepressants, Mm -hmm. there was a study showing that Prozac, fluoxetine, can cause resistant E. coli and cause a lot of changes. So when somebody comes to me and it's clear that there's sort of microbial badness going on, one of the first things I tell them is we need a really clean slate. I look at a list of their medication and their supplements, everything they're taking. I'm like, if they're, we're only going to keep anything that's absolutely necessary. Like you have a vitamin D level of 11, you can take your vitamin D. But all this extra stuff, because we have no idea. I mean, it is all metabolized through the gut. And not to mention that a lot of this stuff too is processed by the liver and the kidneys. It's sort of a big toxic load. And as we get older, our livers are just more tender particularly if we've been having a few drinks along the way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're trying to metabolize all this extra stuff. So it's really important. I mean, I talk about remove, replace, restore. And the remove part is really important. Remove any potential offending agents. So that might be the antibiotics, the acid-blocking drugs, the steroids. It might be your birth control pills or your hormone replacement therapy. It might be your supplements. It could even be your digestive enzymes that you think are helping your non anti-inflammatory drug that you're taking for your bad knee, you've got to get rid of it all. Remove. It's really important because you can't be trying to repopulate while you're also depopulating. Right. It's just not going to work. The other thing is a replace. So are there ways to replace gut bacteria? And when I talk about replace, people say, oh, probiotic, right? There's not great evidence for most probiotics. There's good evidence in particular situations. And you're familiar with one or two of the ones that I recommend. Mm-hmm. And we, there are studies, for example, of a compilation of probiotics that have been really well studied in inflammatory bowel disease and are equivalent to some of the prescription medication, but for the average person. So outside of these specific diseases like inflammatory bowel disease or traveler's diarrhea or a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis in kids, there's not great evidence that the average person should just take a probiotic, just like vitamins. The average person needs to eat really good food from Saqqara Life if they're trying to (laughs) be healthy, not take a vitamin. But the really great way to replace microbes is to get dirty, is to get out in soil and sort of try and Back rewild yourself. Yeah, that's a really great, or to make sure that you're eating food that's actually grown in soil. Yeah. So organic alone isn't enough because there's yeah. industrial organic that's grown in a warehouse, like no synthetic pesticides, but no actual soil. Yep. So you want stuff. So I really, I'm very suspicious of the carrots where each Everything's one is 5.7 inches, perfectly orange. I want the little gnarly, stumpy, funny-looking carrot with we the dirt on it. We talk about that all the time. Yes, like so You don't important. want the most perfect, pretty produce. For sure. So that's the replace. And again, there, there can be a role for a probiotic in specific situations. But another great way to replace is with fermented foods. So things like sauerkraut and kimchi, fantastic. And then, of course, a restore is really diet. So how are you going to restore your microbiome? You're going to eat all those high inulin-containing foods, all the fibrous foods, a wide array of them that feed the healthy bacteria. Because indigestible fiber, the fact that it's indigestible and we can't absorb it all means there's a bunch left over for the microbes. And then they ferment it and they make something called short-chain fatty acids. You might see it abbreviated SCFAs. Butyrate is a great example of that. And the short chain fatty acids are really a marker for a healthy gut. So that's why the indigestible fiber is so important. On Saqqara, you're getting upwards of 180 different ingredients, plant species per week. 
that you're is eating incredible. our meals. And six cups of leafy greens every day. Yeah. We have upwards of over 700 different ingredients in our kitchen that you'll see throughout the month. That point is so important. One of the things that we noticed, and we notice this in sick patients, in our sick patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, so serious autoimmune diseases, when we could get them up above six cups of greens, that's when the magic started to happen. That's when their disease started Mm -hmm. to go into remission. So lots of people come in and they say, oh, I'm being really good. I'm not having any dairy or gluten or, you know, and then I'm like, so what are you actually eating? I'm having bacon and eggs for breakfast. I'm having chicken breast for lunch. And I'm having fish for dinner with two broccoli florets. I'm being so good. And nothing's happening in their gut. Like things are not changing and getting better. Their are starving out. Yes, exactly. So we know from this fantastic study that was published in Nature about five years ago that the first study that I love to talk about is a study by Paolo Leonetti where um, he looked at babies in Burkina Faso and babies in Florence, Italy, and he compared them. And he found that breastfed babies vaginally born at birth were virtually identical despite all the environmental and dietary differences. But as soon as the babies started to adopt sort of table diet, everything changed. So the babies in Florence, Italy were eating like the standard American diet, pizza, pasta, gelato, asabuco, lots of animal protein, fat, sugar. The babies in Burkina Faso were eating mostly plant-based, occasional termite or free-range chicken, but lots of root vegetables and so on. And they had all the, they had double the levels of short-chain fatty acids, and they had all the species associated with leanness and health. And the Florentine kids had the species associated with diarrheal illness and allergy and obesity. And what's really fascinating is neither group of kids were sick. These are toddlers, but you already saw the beginnings of disease. Yeah, which is just you know, so incredible. So you could look at that study and say, well, that's really interesting. But Burkina Faso and Florence, Italy are really different environmentally. And maybe it was that the Burkina Faso kids had all the good dirt around. Mm -hmm. So then that was followed up by a different group of investigators, group at Harvard. They took nine volunteers and they sequestered them. So they were controlling the food and they put them on an Adkins type diet, literally pork rinds and prosciutto for five days. And they looked at the microbiome. Wow. You're like going, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I know my arteries are hardening yeah, as I think exactly. about it. But they put them on this sort of high animal fat, high animal protein diet. Like what a lot of people eat on a ketogenic yeah. diet thinking like they're being super healthy. And they looked at the microbiome before, during, and after. Then they rested them for about five days and they put them on a plant-based diet. Nothing crazy. It was like jasmine rice, tomatoes, lentils, fruit for snack. And The really dramatic thing here, not only did the microbes change dramatically within about 30 hours, so we saw a distinct drop in the bilophilia, the bile-loving bacteria that you need to digest lots of meat, but are also associated, can be associated with inflammation. But the different genes that were turned on and off changed too. So this idea that the genes are static, no. The microbes and the metabolomics from the microbes can actually control gene expression. This is so powerful. And would you call that nutrigenomics in some yeah, way? Yeah, I think is so. It, does it have its own word? Yeah, no, like I think that's microbi- what it is. <laughs> no, no. Microbionomics. Yeah, we should make yeah, something we up. we should make something yeah. up. Train no, that is – because to me, that's the whole beautiful, optimistic message here. It's not like you yeah. get what you get and you don't get upset. And it's not like my grandfather had it, my dad had it, I'm going to have it. And people, 
people are so paralyzed by that. Yes. You know, like you don't have to have Their heart disease. Yeah. My husband had a very serious history, family history of heart disease. His dad had his first almost fatal heart attack at 50 and ultimately mm-hmm. succumbed to heart disease a little over 20 years later. And when I met my husband, he was so paranoid about that. He is vegan, mostly raw, trail runs every morning, has his bowl of oatmeal with his oat milk in the morning, salad for lunch, salad and sauteed collard greens for dinner. He's actually really boring to go to dinner with, but (laughs) he is so good. The cardiologist was like, don't come back. You know, you have a zero calcium score, like you're not having a heart attack. And really he changed his diet after coming to plant stock with me. And listening to Michael Greger's talk, How Not to Die, and hearing Cultural Esselstyn and all these guys talk about it. He was so convinced. We literally left Asheville, went to Charlotte. We went to some fancy steakhouse. He had a big porterhouse and some some pate, some foie gras, and then finished and was like, that's it, I'm done. And he feels so good. He loves it. And so this is a thing, like he feels so empowered by it. He doesn't worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. His cholesterol dropped like 80 points. It was crazy. And feeding your microbiome is just one of the many benefits of eating this way. You know, you're also getting all those phytonutrients and antioxidants and vitamins and minerals that you don't get from, as you were saying, you know, the bacon, from egg, the and cheese Absolutely. diet. Absolutely. And I love that you know, what you mentioned about 180 different species because everything has, all the different plants have different things. Like this one has lycopene and this one has something else. And so having a wide range seasonal stuff, which I know you guys pay a lot of attention to, Mm -hmm. the different colors is so important that you're not just, okay, broccoli florets again today. Yeah. Yeah. One of the biggest reasons people come to Zakara is they say they either want to lose weight or they want to banish bloat. It's a big reason. We get, I'd say, probably, I don't know, off the cuff, 95% of people complain about bloat. Why is that? What is bloat? Bloat refers to additional baggage, if you will, in your GI tract. When people talk about bloat, it's usually air, but sometimes it's stool because they're really just constipated. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's not in the intestine. It's belly fat, and they think it's bloat. And so I always say, if you're abdominal circumference doesn't change. It just stays the same. It might be belly fat. There's a whole chapter in my first book, Gut Bliss, about figuring out if it's belly fat or bloat. But often it is that they're just so full. And you asked the question at the beginning, I didn't really answer, like, why are we seeing an epidemic? Certainly it's the drugs, but it's the food in terms of the whole super sanitized thing. And we're sitting, you know, so we're, our intestinal tract is a muscle. It's a muscular structure and it needs to be walked and twisted and spun around and exercised. So we're spending so much time sitting. Mm. We're eating food that's grown in really sort of unnatural ways. And what we're stressed out. We can't put pesticides are not a huge one. Absolutely. We know things like, um, you know, if you think about BT corn, Bacillus syringiensis and some of these other things are really destructive yeah. to the microbiome. So... It's really challenging for me. How can I help my patients rewild while still, you know, not going all the way out to the cave? And I, I mentioned when we, right before we were, we started about hiking out in Poolsville, this area, and that you can be out in the woods 45 minutes outside of D.C. And more and more, I feel like I've actually got to get my medical practice out of this. I'm in a great location on K Street in D.C., but I literally... I'm in these ongoing talks with the with the zoning people in the ag reserve because I literally want to move my practice out 
to the farm. I, I'm like, wow. there's only so much I can do here in this office. Like I can tell you to go make a green smoothie and do all this stuff. But if you come out to see me there, we can actually hike and do a couple river crossings and we can Rewild roll together. around yeah. in some mud. Yeah. So I just have this calling that. to do it. My husband says it's our my bankruptcy plan that I'm trying to put, <laughs> but I feel a strong calling to do it. There's a farm that we work with upstate and their soil is just some of the most nutrient-rich soil. They never use pesticides, herbicides, anything. They're like far beyond organic. Is and it is it all... a biodynamic cycle where yep. they have the animals? Yes, yep. that's so exactly. Key. Yeah, it's yeah. regenerative, and um, we always talk to them and joke like we should just bottle up their dirt. You and should. Just, like, make their dirt supplements. Or you should have a retreat where you have people come up and just roll, roll around, around in, the, in dirt. the dirt. Yeah. yeah. And so back to this bloat thing. So it's, you know, as you said, it's the die off if that's what it is, maybe if it is the bacteria or the um, dysbiosis, what, what can people do? I know you talked about restore, replenish, et cetera. Um, but does that necessarily mean that I have a gut issue if I'm bloated? No, it doesn't necessarily, but you know, it was honestly why I wrote that first book, Gutless, because there's so many different reasons. And I always tell people, especially women, don't just accept that you're bloated. Like, you've got to kind of roll your sleeves up and be a medical detective. Are you hypothyroid? Are you lactose intolerant? Are you fructose intolerant? Are you gluten sensitive? Do you have a parasite even? Do you have a slow colon because you're taking an iron supplement and that's constipating you? I mean, they're literally like a hundred. Oh, that brings me to the third book, The Bloat Cure, 101 yeah. uh, causes of bloating. And so it's so important to go through those because hidden amongst those many common causes are sometimes some more problematic and serious things like ovarian cancer mm. or endometriosis and things like that. So it's important to sort of try and figure it out. And diet is a great place to start. The other thing I like to remind people, the digestive tract, it's just plumbing. You know, it's one long tube. And if it's a little clogged, it's a great idea to put some thin liquids through and maybe stop like filling it up. So it's a great idea to just take a break for a day and maybe do thin liquids, maybe do some broths and maybe mm -hmm. some green juices instead of a smoothie with all the fiber, which is what I recommend frequently. But maybe this is a time to do some thin liquids with some juices and broths and teas, maybe some adaptogenic teas and more movement and just give it a chance to drain and a chance to empty and then really have that conversation with it like find out like what is your gut trying to tell you yeah. is your gut trying to tell you that every time when you start your day with a bagel that it doesn't go well mm -hmm. is your gut trying to tell you that when you end your evening with a porta house that you're really uncomfortable or that you're sitting too much or whatever it is and what about stress on and the health of your microbiome absolutely so stress is a real thing. And my example I like to use is if a snake suddenly came out from under that that cart right there, I am very petrified of snakes. I would just <laughs> We're from Arizona, the snake, so, snakes yeah. don't bother you, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's say it was like a big python though. Right. It might even okay, scare you guys. Yeah. I would immediately start to sweat. My hair would stand on end. My heart rate would go from the resting nice slow heart rate of 50 to probably 100. My blood pressure would go up. Like all these measurable physical changes would happen in my body just from seeing the snake. In fact, I can probably induce some of them just from thinking about the mm -hmm. snake. 
which is crazy, right? Because we think of this stuff as being super tentorial and it's in your head, but it's not in your head. It's in your body. And a lot of it is in your gut. Mm. We've all felt that sort of butterflies or like bad feeling. You're walking down the alley at night and it's like, oh, I shouldn't be in the alley. And then you get mugged or something. You're like, I knew I shouldn't have been in this alley. So that feeling, we have seven times more brain cells in our gut than we have in our spinal cord. Wow. We have literally, you know, millions of neurons. We have 90% of the serotonin, the feel-good hormone, is located in our gut. There is bidirectionality through the vagus nerve and all these neurotransmitters and other things. It's very real. So stress affects us not just neck up, but also waist down in our gut for sure. And so that's something that we really have to... We really have to be aware of. And the good thing is we can't necessarily change what's going on situationally. You have a 16-month-old. Yeah. <laughs> There's not as much sleep, sleep as you more. like. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you can change your response to it and mm. you can change how you feel about it. And even things that are challenging, you can Just, make yeah. them more joyful. And I was going to – so if we know stress can impact, negatively impact our gut health, does joy positively impact it? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And you felt it, right? I mean, yeah. and and I mean, not to sort of plug you guys too much, but I feel it when I eat your food. Mm. Like, it's joyful. Yeah. I feel like this is beautiful. It tastes good. I'm nourishing Made myself differently. Yeah, it really. And then if you eat your food outside in some dirt, yes. <laughs> sitting on the grass, yeah. it's a trifecta. I love that so much. Um, one other thing I'd really love to get your opinion on when it comes to bacteria is... What about our gut health and aging? That's something I think about often. If you if if stress can age us and having dysbiosis or unbalanced microbiome can cause physiological stress, can that impact aging as well? And and sorry, just the the second part of that is is there a difference between the microbes in my digestive tract versus on my skin? There is, I'll start with the last question first. There is a very big difference between what's on your skin and in your gut, although there are some shared features. I have some fantastic news for you. You're just going to be so thrilled to hear this. Our microbiome <laughs> becomes more stable as we age and more resilient. Okay. So the nice thing is that an antibiotic as a grown-up has much less impact than when you're young. And we used to think the really critical years were zero to three, but it looks like now it's zero to 18. Mm. Um, but after that, it's much more resilient and it reverts back to its sort of original state much more easily. Now you want that original state to be a good state, but that's why it's so important to not drug the kids, like yeah. stop drugging the kids, you yeah. know, antibiotics and cough medicine and ADD drugs. Stop giving your kids speed. Yeah. And, and did you want to speak to aging too? Yes. So the good thing about aging, the really lovely thing there is our microbiome is more stable and more resilient. So we are, we just have a little more stability if we are prescribed an antibiotic, but also if we have an infection, like if mm. we travel and we have traveler's diarrhea. Oh, sorry. Or something I mean like anti-aging. Like anti-aging. Like yeah. Like the wrinkles on my face. I don't know. Oh, you're talking about the important part of aging. Yeah. Not what's going on <laughs> in the cup, but what it looks like. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's yeah, yeah. So Caroline's like, really help me, Dr. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I have to tell you, like, this is when the whole, like, you got to get dirty. Mm. Like the less stuff you put on. And I I love how you say that with so much sass too. No, it no, it's true. Just like get out it, there. And... It's so true. 
I, I used to sublease space to a dermatologist in my old office space who's lovely. And, but I thought like all this, like peeling away the skin, I'm like, I'm not sure that's such a good idea. Like yeah. some of those layers, cause you're also like, you're scorching the earth, you know, you're burning it with a laser and you're killing off all these healthy bacteria mm-hmm. too. So when I look at, I really notice people's skin. I'm a, a gastroenterologist, but maybe a frustrated dermatologist. <laughs> and I have rosacea. You have so I pay, skin. thank you. I pay you too. You do. do a lot of work. No, no. <laughs> I pay attention to it. And I, there's definitely a connection between dysbiosis and rosacea for a lot of people. And I look at people who have this really glowing skin. So there's some obvious things. And there is some bad news here, like alcohol, terrible for your skin. Oh, man. Terrible for aging. (laughs) I love my glass of wine. wine. Yeah. So notice people who don't drink. There's a a lovely woman from Ethiopia who works with us at the hospital. She's one of the techs. And she's literally never had alcohol and obsessed with her skin. (laughs) She has, like, the most beautiful skin. Wow. So the food, I mean, you guys are... You have so much going for you with the diet, right? Being plant-based and all this beautiful food and wide variety. So that's huge. But alcohol, uh, really bad. And then the other thing that's sort of a a little bit of a bummer is you're in New York City. So the air quality in terms of soil microbes and so on. So that's why you have to go roll around in the dirt. And And do um, do you think that the probiotic creams and things like that do anything? I think they do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Is and it I more think internal the internal versus external. It's totally internal. And I think they're potentially problematic because everything you put on your skin, I mean, these microbes are really fragile. I wash my face with manuka honey mm. because after years and years and years with the rosacea, I found that was the only thing that really helped to the redness. So I use sometimes these little individual packets of mm-hmm. the manuka honey, or I just stick my finger in the jar and I damp my face a little bit and I wipe it all over. And then I leave it on for like a minute or so. Sometimes I go in my steam shower and then I wipe it off. And that's literally it. Wow. And the less I put on it, the less I kind of scrub and super sanitize my hair. So just like the gut, it's not about a product to fix it, right? It's not about, oh, hair's is probiotic, it's going to fix it. It's how about fewer antibiotics mm-hmm. and acid blocking drugs, et cetera. And I think it's the same thing with the skin and hair. The less stuff the better. in general. Although I will say... Um, in my office, upstairs for me is a wonderful Dr. Tina Alster, who's like the laser lady, Washington mm-hmm. Institute of Cosmetic Laser Surgery, I think. And there's a lot of traffic up there, upstairs, compared to my <laughs> office. And and I did, I went to her and I was like, Tina, I just like, I'm using Manuka honey on my face and nothing else. And like, you know, I'm 53. I need like more of a regimen. And so she was like, okay, I'm going to give you this cream. It's called Method C. It's her brand. And this stuff is unbelievable. So just a plug for Tina. Wow. It's just, I mean, that's all I'm using, just a moisturizer. And it doesn't feel disruptive. It's very light. I use it at night. And it doesn't feel like, you know, it's doing bad things Mm -hmm. to my skin. It's amazing that you talk about, like, washing your hair less. Because when I had terrible acne, that was something that all of the doctors were suggesting. It's like, keep your hair clean. Keep your pillowcase clean. You use topical antibiotics on your face, keep your face clean, and uh, really 
it's the opposite it's and nobody opposite. was looking inside and you're so right and so they're putting on me on these antibiotics but do you think there's something early on in your history because my daughter who's 14 and a half is now struggling not super cystic but definitely struggling with acne and i'm convinced it was her whole c-section lack of nursing and the 18 I, courses of antibiotics so tell my me my mother had for me you. naturally no epidural no nothing i was breastfed until i was about three years old wow and grew up in sedona definitely rolling around out in the and you didn't basis. get a lot of antibiotics as a kid for any reason. I think maybe a little bit. I remember drinking that pink liquid. But not a I ton. Think. But your sister also suffered from cystic acne, right. which is interesting. And I do think for some of these diseases, there's definitely a genetic predisposition. Because but there's often an environmental microbes. trigger. You're getting yeah. those microbes from your parents. Yes. So if they had something in their microbes, potentially it could be passed and along. And it's, it's often the combination. So the microbiome is one sort of epigenetic factor, right? right. But it is, it's like skin cancer and sun. You know, you can have mm-hmm. the genetic predisposition, but the sun can be right, sort of the trigger. Right. So, you know. It, it could be environment, it, diet, yeah, any of those different been. things could have and, triggered And, you know, it. dairy we now know and, and casein yeah. is really implicated if you, right. you know, if you, ate a lot of dairy and had yeah. that sort of genetic predisposition. I did. And, and cereal for breakfast, mm-hmm. which I think was a huge piece of it. Mm-hmm. Should have been having those leafy greens. <laughs> well, you weren't having green but... smoothies as a kid for breakfast? No. What? No. <laughs> My children will be. Children. So I'd love to end on this idea of bridging science and spirit. So where do you think that gut feeling comes from, like that intuition? Why do we call it the gut feeling? And do you think that's connected to the bacteria in our gut? We are like a hive that is animated by the bees. The microbes are bees. So we are sort of inanimate, really. We are ectoderm and endoderm and mesoderm. We're tissues, you know, skeleton, soft tissue. But we're really animated, by these little, as they were initially called by Antony von Leeuwenhoek when he described them in the 1600s, little animalcules. <laughs> and um, when he looked at his dental plaque under the microscope that he made, you can imagine what that looked like in the 1600s. <laughs> so we are animated by the microbes. And we can't live without them. I mean, you can't, you know, you couldn't live in the world in, as a sterile organism without these microbes. And so... They have, I mean, I don't know. Does a microbe have a soul? I don't know. I don't think a protozoa, one cell organism does, but they are organisms. They're alive mm-hmm. and they do things. They make things, they mate, they reproduce. They do they a mate. lot of the things. Some of them can, depending, um, depending on what kind of organism you're talking about. So they're alive and they mm-hmm. enliven us. And so I think that a lot of that feeling of gut feeling, it has to do with the nerve cells and the neurotransmitters, but it also has to do with the fact that the majority of our microbes are in our gut, mm. that they are kind of, you know, they are the heart of the hive, if you will. Mm. I love that. It's almost like they can pick up on your surroundings quicker than you can yes. and alert. Yes, they can. They sense stuff. Interesting. Sensitive little little guys. Little buggers. <laughs> Good and bad. Light work? Sure. So we like to end with light work, which is a practice or a challenge. It's work for our Sakara lights to help them shine their light a little brighter. Um, or so, a lot brighter. Or a lot brighter. <laughs> so we'd love if you could share a practice to help our Sakara lights shine brighter. 
I'd first like to say that my best medical advice is just three simple words, and that's dirt, sweat, veg. So try and get dirty, try and get sweaty, try and eat as many vegetables as you can. And honestly, if you do that, yes, sometimes you just have bad luck and, you know, a bus could hit you or you have some rare genetic thing. But dirt, sweat, veg will take you really far. It's the first thing. The other thing that I love, love, love to do, I'm obsessed with Guy Raz's podcast on NPR, How I Built This. So I like to mix up a big green smoothie. I use coconut water, unsweetened, always kale and collards, either the lacinato kale or the curly kale, always parsley, sometimes celery. I don't love it, but it's good for you. High fiber. Always lemon juice and usually mango. And I mix up a big Vitamix full of that. And I get into my bath, which is way hotter than it should be. I know it's like scalding, which I know is probably killing off all these microbes on my skin, but I love it. So I set a big bath and I put in all kinds of dirt things that I've collected over the years that are frequently clogging our drain. Mm -hmm. And I get in there and I drink my enormous green smoothie and I listen to Guy Raz, How I Built This. And that's like my thing. And I feel amazing when I do that. Yes, I'm rewilding. Or as somebody said, you don't get out much if that's your idea of a good time. (laughs) But I love that. I wish I were doing it outside, but I have big glass windows in the bathroom. So I'm looking out at the woods because we live on the edge of the woods, but it would be, it would be ideal. My husband and I are in this big battle because he wants to put in a swimming pool and I want to put in a mud pit. So we'll see. Amazing. All right. So that's the challenge. Smoothie. Mm -hmm bathtub with dirt but with Sakar life podcast instead <laughs> oh, yeah exactly <laughs> that's it. listen to the episode do do your work and we will see you next time thank you so much dr Tuckin. thank you so much for having me and i'm just looking at the two of you you're so glowy oh, and it's you. just your microbes look so happy <laughs> so happy to be in your body cheers thank you cheers to that Today with Dr. Robin Chutkin, we talked a lot about the importance of the microbiome and how it impacts our health and disease. So today we are hearing from Samantha from North Carolina. Her Sakara story is, I have suffered from rheumatoid arthritis since I was very young. With over 20 years of medication and diet change, etc., I found myself on my 24th year struggling with some of the most difficult and intense daily flare-ups and sickness relying on others for help since I could barely do things on my own. My friends and family would help me wash my clothes, take care of my pets, and especially prepare my food. Unfortunately, my hands and arms have been hit the hardest. It is difficult to cook and prepare meals. I found myself unable to provide my body with good quality organic whole plant-based nutrition, which furthered the cycle. I have tried other meal delivery options, but they are either boring not completely plant-based, don't have as many vitamins and nutrients, are frozen, not fresh, and or require lots of prepping. I want to be as independent as I can, and when I discovered Sakara, I nearly cried. I'd been imagining something like this for such a long time. The Sakara four-week program helped me reduce inflammation, improve my sleep and quality of sleep, completely eradicate my need and craving for caffeine, regain energy, and pain-related lethargy, reduced my stubborn belly fat, and got me to this amazing place of independence. I was happier, relatively pain-free, and recovered from sickness in record time. For me and my autoimmune disease, colds and other viruses love to show up a few times every month. 
I'd be sick for days and the recovery was awful. With Sakara, I was sick one time and for two days. That is completely unheard of for me. My recovery time was incredibly fast and my downtime was minimal. You must add magic to your meals. This whole program was so rewarding and pertinent to my body. It woke me up to the things I was doing right, the things I was doing wrong, and the things that I could change. Food is fun. Life is fun. Thank you. That's so beautiful. Oh, I love hearing these stories. I cry. They're so motivating. But really, you know, you don't have anything without your health. Yeah, and just what a beautiful, beautiful reminder that you have so much control over how you feel. And every time you sit down to eat, you are impacting how you're going to deal. And even those of us that think that we're doing all the right things, a lot of times life gets in the way and we, you know, slip up here and slip up there. And just having ready to eat food has made such a difference in my life and clearly Samantha's life as well. Absolutely. And even just the small things that we really take for granted, like having energy throughout the day. Sleeping well. Sleeping well. Yeah. That I love that she says that it eradicated her need for caffeine. I think that's the dream, isn't it? To just wake up feeling energized and that that's a, a sign of, of health and really taking care of yourself. I'm so happy that she was able to find this through Sakara. Yeah, and back to what Dr. Chutkin was speaking about earlier in the episode, the importance of what's on your plate and how that relates to the health of your microbiome and therefore how you feel every single day. Food really is medicine. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Samantha. We love you. Thank you for being on this journey with us. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. This podcast was recorded live at Noya House in New York City.